Welcome to episode 80 of Control the Controllables. Today, we have my doubles partner, or my ex-doubles partner, James Auckland. James was a British number one doubles player. He was he got as high as 57 in the world in doubles. He's got another great story. Uh, there's lots of fantastic messages in there. He's now working in participation in parks back in the UK. And again, I think it's it's really interesting how you've got a top professional player who his partner after he played with me, after I stopped playing, he moved up in the world, started playing with Andy Murray. And now here he is bringing tennis behind the scenes to the masses and doing it with the same passion that he showed after we won a match at Wimbledon together. And that's the beautiful thing about the sport of tennis. The passion runs through it from from bottom to top, top to bottom. And whatever role you are playing within the ecosystem, whether people do value it as much as they should, I certainly do and having the opportunity to be speaking people in all different ranges, levels, lenses of the sport is is a real honour to see how that's really coming through. And when you do speak to someone like James, you see that also the sport is in a good place. I know we hear lots of negatives about where the sport is at, but there's a hell of a lot of passionate people there that are trying to drive it forward every single day. So sit back, relax. There's some funny stories in there as well. Uh, We are very familiar with each other and hopefully that relaxed way will come through with some entertainment as well for you you today. Have Have a wonderful day. I'm gonna pass you over to James Auckland. So James Auckland, a massive welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing, partner? I'm well, I'm well, and thanks for, for having me on. Obviously, it's been a long time since um, since we've spoken, and obviously we've spent a, a lot of time together as a junior, and it's been great to see what you've been doing at Soto, and uh, and it's been great to be part of these podcasts. You've had some uh, pretty pretty big names on, and uh, I haven't won too many Grand Slams, but uh, uh, it's uh, I, I can actually say I'm Wimbledon champion currently. Uh, I'm 2020 Wimbledon champion. I managed to bluff my way through the uh, the club champs actually, um, so I can yeah. So and the thing is, there wasn't a championship this year. Um, I'm I'm I, I I can I can now say that I am the 2020 Wimbledon singles champion. So that, that's my uh, only, I'm only saying because you had Hussey on the other week, and uh, obviously he's, he's a Wimbledon champion and, and a good mate. So it's great to hear him. But thanks for having me on. So come on, then before we get started, Orcs, who who did you beat in the final of the of the championships? Uh, that was uh, none other than the uh, the infamous Lee Childs. Was it? It was. It was Chinks. It was Chinks. So I got my moment because he 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 beat he duffed me up uh, about three or four years ago uh, in the final. So um, but it went on clay, which traditionally wasn't a surface for me growing up. But maybe. We'll come on to that in a, later on about you know uh, the British perspective on, on on clay and the perceived lack of success in it, but it's uh, it's actually a good surface for me now. Um, so there you go. Can we have a score? Uh, the score was one and six. 
So James Auckland beat Lee Childs in the final of 2021. <laughs> I tell yeah. you that, and I didn't know that. This was not preconceived beforehand. So Chinky, if you're listening to this, come on, man, pull your finger out. What's because because he he's won it the last couple of years, I think, hasn't he? Oh, he's I mean he's a, he's a joke. He's won he's won it. He's, he hasn't won as much as Jeff Hunter, um, but right. I don't think anyone played when Jeff Hunter played it. But but no, Chinks has, has dominated it, and 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 Jamie Baker, he's 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 won. He might have won the last two or three, and then Chinks okay. won by. Five or six so it's tough there's some good players out there well well done on keeping your level mate that's and to those listening so james auckland he's many things but he was the he was atp singles i believe i've had conflicting rankings but around about 280 atp uh, at his highest and which is an excellent singles ranking and then 57 in the world in doubles he's a former davis cup player former british number one doubles player he has partnered some absolute legends on the tour at different times. Andy Murray, Dan Kiernan, you know, just people people like that. Um, you know, so lots of things to go into. But the, how I want to start, actually, Orcs today, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book Bounce, but, you know, there's a lot of these books and they, they, they try and, I guess, look into high performance and they try and look into what creates champions and all of these type of things. And certainly me and you being the same age, I think there's only literally a few days between us. You came from an era of Norfolk tennis where, where there was a real kind of hunting in packs kind of mentality, lots of, lots of highly ranked national players. How big of an impact was that on you when you were growing up? I think it's huge, actually. I mean, I think, um, I, I'm not sure if, I haven't read the, the, the bounce book that you're referring to, but there, there's lots of studies that show that actually quite, um, it's quite common across many different sports, actually, where you have um, clusters of, of players who are either geographically close to each other or they happen to grow up. And I think I think they did one study in, in I think it, was, it might have been in China with table tennis, like the, the three greatest um, world tennis champions all came out of the same village. I mean, that, that's not a coincidence. So, with that in mind, so Norfolk, we 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 were fortunate at the time that we had probably two, three, maybe four players all um, coming through at the same age. Um, all um, they competitive, and we all sort of trained and played together, and we all pushed each pushed each other. And and I think that's I mean that's 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 the environment that we had, and it was beneficial to all of us. And and I think to be honest, that's that's what sort of academies I guess try and reflect. And you probably have the same hopefully at Soto trying to create that environment where people feed and and work off each other to get the best out of themselves. And at what age did you start playing? Were you an early starter? Were you? You know, how did because you, your parents weren't tennis people were they no so i mean i think i mean I, i've listened to a few of the podcasts and i think it's, it's it's a great way to start actually trying to find people's different journeys and it is all different um my uh my parents obviously to- totally non-sporting background no interest in sport didn't play sport themselves um i had a um i think it was my my infant school i think maybe i was seven maybe six or seven and a little lady came around and she put up a net and you know run a little session and me and my mates had a little go we thought oh, that's quite fun and and we took from there and and, and you know i think we i don't know how it even evolved from that i think we they, they did our school club and then they said oh there's a club down the road you want to do a they do a session there on a weekend and and it, and it grew and grew and after a while you, you end up thinking oh actually this is quite fun and it's quite good at it i wasn't terrible at it i mean and then um, and then and it grew from there and then if you talk about I guess to mention some of the names, uh, and and please jump in if I if I avoid if I miss any Barry Fulcher, 
Dan Crawley, Nicky Crawley, Warren Sawyer, Stuart Rogers, Richard Bloomfield. You know, there was there was quite Robert Reeve, I remember. You know, there was there was quite Neil Basket, I think. Mean, yeah, Basket. Yeah. So so there was when did I suppose you guys start coming together and training? What sort of age did that start to form? Um, we, we, we were Barry, uh, particularly quite early, actually. We, were, we went that, that, that Saturday session uh, that I mentioned. Um, Barry was on that. So mm-hmm. I, I've known Barry since we were literally eight years old. Right. Um, and we, we trained, uh, we did our, it was back then it was called short tennis. Vinny tennis yeah. wasn't existed. It was, you know, the big, thick black rackets, which are heavier than anything we play with now. And we just sponge ball and, and, uh, and we developed a friendship and a competitive relationship, actually. Yeah. I mean, going through from eight, nine, as we started going through, Orange ball had just come in, but we kind of, if I'm honest, I had to skip through that. I wasn't actually particularly good at short tennis or mini tennis, uh, maybe because I, could, I just kept hitting everything out. But uh, as soon as we come, sort of transitioned into full court tennis, that's really sort of where uh, I sort of, I wouldn't say blossomed, but certainly improved better in relation to my skill set. Um, but the, comp- the competition element was, was, was key. I remember, and I, and I try and tell my players now and anyone who I work with, certainly the juniors out there, is, you know, the... I think so many players sort of rely too much on the structured um, coaching and, and being around and getting people to organise stuff for them. But me and Barry, I mean, I remember we, we joined a club, Lime Tree Row Tennis Club, and I, I remember at least three or, time, three or four times a week, my mum like, picking up from school and just literally just dropped me at the club. And Barry would, do, Barry would walk there, he was walking distance, and we would, we would just, you know, we'd, we'd get given a little bit of money for some tokens for the floodlights, and we'd start at four o'clock. And we, we were playing best of five sets just because we just wanted to play. And we were like maybe 10, 11 years old, because that's what they did at Wimbledon. So we thought, oh, let's should we just play best of five. Yeah, all right, let's play best of five. And it was, I mean, it was thinking about it, it was crazy. But the amount of volume of tennis that we played in those sort of informative years, sort of that, that, nine ten eleven and just playing competitively for fun and it is it's yeah i i'd like to see more of that actually in 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 today's world and do you think that you were because of that would you say you were a good competitor at that age i think um good competitor i mean tactically probably a little bit clueless um wasn't quite sure of my strengths at the time I, i i could i could serve well and I could, I could hit my forehand, but I didn't really, in terms of construct, you just you're just scrapping around and 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 fighting. And if you hit a couple of winners, you you you, you love it. You, you basically try and replicate the guys who you see on TV. And obviously, that was far and few between because t- tennis wasn't really covered anything like it is now. I mean, the internet didn't exist. Um, tennis was on maybe once a year at Wimbledon, and but I used to you know I used to get my VHS out. I used to record today at Wimbledon. I mean, funny enough, I going found some old VHS recordings of yeah. Chris Bailey against Goran Ivanišević. I mean, in a visa because Chris Bailey was actually the, 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 the former Norfolk player who we looked up to. So, you know, we uh, used to and it used to re, you know watch reruns on your on, on your VHS player because that and that was all the tennis that we could could find on TV at the time. So, um, but all of that you know played a part to, to forming our sort of love of the game. Really, you're you're underplaying this a bit, Orcs, because. At age 12, you were selected to go to what we know. We've had a lot of the Bisham boys on. You were selected to go to the National Tennis Centre at Bisham. Now, as a 1980 born, that must have you down at, certainly in the top three or four in that, in that age group. So you were nationally a very good player at age 11 or 12. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it came as a bit of a surprise. So, I mean, at, not at 
sort of 10, 11, you know, you're not traveling that much. It is a bit sort of regionalized. You, um, so you, you play a lot of county competitions. You might go into the next county, possibly the region. Um, and you didn't really know where you stood in terms mm. of it, nationally. You had an idea. So um, actually going into that, I mean, I still remember it now. Um, me and Barry, uh, we shared a room and we were the, the, the Norfolk guys that qualified for that. So there's, I think it was 16 of us that went there. Is this the um, Bisham, Bisham Nationals? This has been yeah. So this is under twelve nationals yes. was held at was held at Bisham Abbey. I, th yes. I think you did you did you play it? Oh, I, mate, I, I, I absolutely smashed it. I smashed the consolation draw. I, won, <laughs> I, I beat Peter Ripley in the final of consolation. Really, I, I played. I, I, I was thinking. I was just this morning. I was thinking about if, you, if this came up. But yeah, Peter Ripley was actually in my box. So I had Peter Ripley. Um, I had uh, so, but the thing, Daniel Belcher was the top seed, so I he was in my box, so I, I wasn't seeded or anything. So, if I'm honest, that event I came through as a bit of a um, an underdog, so and, and ended up is a bit of a surprise when, when I won it for myself as much as anyone. Um, and so that's how I sort of became known, I guess, in on that scene, and as a result of that. Um, myself, Belcher, and, and a guy called Andy Wakefield um, were, were, were asked to join the, the, the National Academy, which is at Bisham Abbey, and obviously something, a place that you know you know a lot about. A couple of things. One, I, I can't, I'm smiling here because I remember one thing I loved about being in the consolation final, as much as being in the consolation final is a bit naff because you're in the consolation. <laughs> the final's a final, mate. <laughs> But it meant that you didn't have to be a lines judge, or a, I don't know if you remember what all all the other all the other players were umpires and lines judges for the for the for the yeah, finals. I think you're right. Yeah. So I got to so I got to anyway. I got to experience that, albeit in the NAF consolation final. But the second thing isn't that absolutely amazing that an under twelve tournament is played. And if that is true, and I'm sure, again, you should had more potential than that, but basically you came from nowhere, won the tournament, and the next thing you know, you're leaving home mm. <laughs> to live in a national tennis centre because you've performed really well over over a long weekend. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, it was, I'm sure it wasn't just, I mean, there's a few other things that sort of came around, there's, uh, but it, but it's essentially, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really know many. It's the first time I've seen a lot of these players um, a couple of the Southeast guys when we had regional matches East against Southeast. So I knew Peter Ripley and I knew uh, Nicholas Begbie, do you remember this guy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stuart Rhodes. Um, you know, so so you saw, you, you're aware of him, but anyone basically, so any, anywhere up north, so I, I, I don't think I had, as first time I met you, um, um, Dave Sherwood wasn't on the scene yet. Um, and it was, yeah, sort of Belcher, Wakefield, all these, you know, these Anthony Perkins, all these sort of guys basically north of the the, the, the centre middle mark you, you never seen before. So, uh, but t tennis has evolved and competitions evolved now. It's become a much more uh, national, and there's more tournaments on. So it's, uh, but but you're, you're right to say that you know to to, to base that um, off one or two events. Um, it, it, I mean, that, that's all they had to go on at the time. I don't think they had the infrastructure of of tournaments. Uh, you know, you know, to do that, and they were looking for to, and whether or not I killed the spot or not, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But, uh, but it was, uh, but it was a great opportunity, and, and I, and I, it's one which, um, you know, it's tough, to, tough to turn down. And did you enjoy it? You were there for two years. We'll get to that in a minute. But did you enjoy your time there? Yeah, do you know what? Absolutely loved it. So I, um, I, I loved every element of it. I think leaving home, 
um, was exciting. I know it's daunting for a lot of people, um, but if you listen to my mum speak, you'd probably know that it's probably good to get out. I mean, wow, she can talk for England. So I just needed some space. So so for me, I mean, I absolutely loved it, being around the older guys and trying to learn off them. And at the time, it's where the England football team uh, trained um, and they had a par three golf course. I mean, it, all the th think about all the things that a 12-year-old boy who just loves sport and competing, you know, it, it, was, it was a dream. And if I'm honest, um, it absolutely devastated um, when I, and, and to, today I think I'm, not, I'm the only one to have been asked to leave. I think everyone either finished their course, natural course, you know, the school finished and it or from your perspective, I think it was actually closing down financially when it closed down. But I think I might have been one of the only few, if not the only one who was actually asked to leave after that time, which is why I did two years. And I, I was doubly upset because I knew you um and uh Dave Sherwood um and Chinks was were coming in the next year so that made it even worse because I had three guys coming in who you know friendly with and more guys my year so I was the only one my age there at the time and so there were uh, so that, that that made it even tougher actually so for those listening it's a bit of a uh I guess quite some quite defining moments in in certainly my life and I think your life as well though because I guess we've had we've had together actually and either directly or indirectly and this moment so there's me as a 14 year old from the northeast of England I got invited to Bisham Abbey which was the national tennis school some of you guys listening would have heard you know there's quite been quite a few of the kind of what we would call the Bisham boys on there but in order to make space for myself and David Sherwood to go, they had to remove the man talking to you today, James Auckland, from, from, the, from the academy to make space. And, and we were fully aware of this. I mean, I remember it was quite a, because we were friends and it was quite a difficult thing, actually, for 13, 14 year olds to go through. So can you talk, talk us through how that happened? How did that conversation happen? Was it out the blue? And then what impact did then ha that have on the rest of your tennis playing career? Yeah, I mean, it, it is an interesting time. So it, it was out of the blue. I think um, I remember Fraser Ald, who was, was there, was he the house tutor there? He with left you guys? just before I came, yeah. So he, he took me to one side and um, he was actually the one to tell me uh, wow. first. And um, so that was, that was quite tough. And um, from what I know, obviously Barker's... Uh, uh, um, almost like a father figure to all of us really there um it, 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 he actually said he was actually against it he actually wanted me to to stay on um so to have the coaches well certainly the, the lead coach wanted to stay on but i think um i think the, it came from the director which was a guy called Derek bone at the time um along with maybe someone else that had took the decision to try and maybe open up some space and like i said to and have a, a, a read a new direction and if i'm honest at the time um you know i wasn't getting the results they were they, they were looking for and i think um i wasn't you know lighting up the scene nationally i wasn't winning matches internationally um whereas you know sam dixon uh, yourself dave showed I mean, if I'm honest, all of you three guys, particularly Sam Dixon being obviously a year younger than us, but you, you were way more um, physically developed. You were much bigger, stronger, um, and you competed and you were winning and you were, comp you know, you know, you were, you were more, you know, more successful than I was at that time. So um, I think the term they used, I always meant now, I wasn't improving, to, I wasn't improving to the level they had hoped, um, I think was the phrase that always rung in my head. And the fact that I can still remember it now, however many what 26 27 years ago um it, you know that, that 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 played a part and um and i went back uh, not tail between the legs but i felt bruised um 
And if I'm honest, the only thing that kind of got me through then is a big credit, and he, he doesn't get enough credit for this, is my old coach who I left to go to Bisham, a guy called Marlon Smith. Um, he sort of took me back on his win. He could have easily kind of had, you know, pride for whatever reason. And he was amazing. Took me back and said, come on, Jimmy, let's show these guys. And, and we actually sat down and we made a, he said, come on, let's, let's make a list. And he gave me a list and we made a list of all the people um, that I wanted to, to beat over the next two to three mm-hmm. years or four years, however long. It was like a bucket list of wins to, to, to show progress or to show improvement in my performance. Um, and uh, and it, what it gave me it gave me real focus and drive. Um, I mean, looking back, it's a bit short-sighted because it's only people who are British on there. Perhaps, um, perhaps, perhaps that was um, that's actually probably a, a problem which you know which we can talk about later on in terms of how we set goals and what we aim for. Um, but it but it really gave me drive and, and focus and 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 as a result. Um, of that and to be honest probably training in a home environment and and I probably didn't know it at the time but as you know as much as I love Bisham looking back it probably maybe that environment wasn't best for my own training and personal development because I did I did actually I started really well in a home environment um, surrounded by friends at school um, and 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 back back in that sort of Norfolk you know competitive groove if you like. And now reflecting back 25 plus years later the one thing that I quite like about this story, even though I'm the one that you overtook and, and alongside others, and that's not personal, you know, and, and at all, and as you know, is that you actually played longer and actually ended up probably with the highest ranking out of, out of that whole group in, in the long run. Is, is that something that stayed with you that you kind of, that helped carry and drive you through your playing career? Um, actually, actually, funny enough, you'd think it would be, but it, it it wasn't because mainly because, like as you said, you know, everyone was quite close. So, um, you know, I don't think any player takes pride, or it's not. I think it'd be unusual if a player takes pride for carrying on longer than someone else because everyone has their own journeys. And to be honest, I think once you get to a professional level, you're so focused on your own development that, to be honest, I, th- I think the more you mature, the more you realise that wow, I spent so much time as a young lad worrying what other people were doing and worrying what their results were like. And, and if I'm honest, I think oh, that is quite ingrained in, in British mentality for far too long. And I, I think people who said that that didn't exist and didn't um, inhibit their development would be, would, would, wouldn't be true. Um, I think it's better now. I really do. I really do think that the environment in which the current... I guess crop of, of players come through is, is a better environment, and I think Leon Smith has helped tremendously in that. Um, I think Andy has helped with that as well. Um, but at the time, yeah, we, it's always yeah, it it was it, it it wasn't quite as it is is now. Um, um, but no, I didn't necessarily, necessarily take enjoyment over continuing to carry on longer than, than other players. If anything, it was a shame when they left because it's one less person to travel with. Um, yeah. Obviously, we we played doubles for. A good year or so and then and then, and then obviously when you chose to a, a different path obviously you know I'm, I'm no longer traveling with someone you know who, who you've spent a lot of time with and, and you've gotten to know and there's obviously in a, in a team sport like doubles when it is a team sport you know you've you've, you've lost you know a part that you yeah. know that, that you need to help you develop yeah yeah I think my my point's probably coming more I don't know if you've seen the Michael Jordan documentary or the Chicago Bulls documentary yeah, it's brilliant. Michael Jordan focused <clears throat> and he <clears throat> certainly seemed to strongly use 
almost anything to get himself pumped up. You know, that guy looked at me the wrong way. I'm going to show him, you know, uh, this guy, you know, so, uh, and, and I think a lot of people do that in sport. And, and what I'm about to do here, I have to have a pause because I can't mention myself in the same sentence as Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, it. You, you already have it. Fine. Leave it in. Leave it. So, so now that you've laughed, I can go to my story. But I remember that, and I don't mind mentioning him. There was a coach called Harvey Slater, who in the in the Northeast. And when I was age nine or ten, he he hit with me. Did one of these like he was the selected regional coach to hit with me and write a report on me. And yeah. and my parents one day actually, I think I'd stumbled across it when I was probably twelve or thirteen, and they actually showed me the report, and he abused me, like he he, he swore in it, he swore in it about it, he basically said he used the word shit that that's what I was, um I would never make it past county level, I can't move, I like really quite you know mm. strong terminology, now. I remember the first day, and it was back in 2004, when I walked into Wimbledon to play the real event, you know, not the, not just the juniors. I remember walking in, sitting in the locker room, and honestly, I had a strong, strong feeling of wanting to call Harvey Slater. Yeah, yeah. Really strong, you know, and, and I still have quite a strong feeling now on... You know, do it, and, and then a, a second story. Sorry, it's about to become my podcast. I'll give you know, back to you in a minute. Sorry. <laughs> this is great. This but, is great. But, but, but my second story on it, U, U.S. College, uh, the head coach, and again, I'll call him out, Michael Fancut. You know, if you want to talk about it, Michael, come on the show. We can have we can we can have it out. And and I played in Dallas, 110 degrees, and it was in the All American Championships. I was, I lost the first set seven, six after like an hour and a half. And he walked past my coach and he said, Keenan's got no chance now, has he? You know, he can't win a three set match, you know, basically abusing my weight and my, my fitness levels. And my coach told me that. And I said that day, I will never lose to anybody from Tennessee. I said, I was so strong on it. The purpose was so strong. I ended up winning all four, five, six dual matches against Tennessee, including players top 10 in the nation. And on the last one, I beat Peter Handoyu, a guy from Indonesia who was number seven in the nation. And I went up to him and I went, thank you, coach. I said, thanks for motivating me the last four years. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, thanks for motivating me the last four years. I said, in Dallas, September 2000 or 99, whenever it was, you said this about me. And I said, I will never lose to one of your players during the whole four years. And I haven't. I've beaten all six. So thank you for motivating me. <laughs> and he said, have some respect. I made the I made the quarterfinals of your national championships. He was talking about Wimbledon. He was a quarterfinals yeah. of Wimbledon. I said, no, I respect you. I'm just saying thank you for the motivation. So I guess that's where I'm coming from a little bit rather yeah. than, rather than I know you wouldn't have an issue with us as such, but... Just, I, I guess we all have to find our our ways and our fires and our yeah. And I'm just wondering if that happened with you. Well, absolutely. So I mean, hence the list. I mean, that that was the starting point. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start here. Okay, let's let's prove a point. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 it, and it carried on throughout that. I mean, I think um, not quite as is in the same way. But I remember um, at nationals later on when I was sort of 18, 
Um, um, I had uh, Stefan Edberg's old coach, Tony Pickard, who was from Nottingham, he used to come and watch matches and he knew Martin Smith a little bit and Martin was saying, oh, come and have a look at this guy. And um, I'd just be an Adam Wharf in the semis. Um, and I was in the final and I was all quite, you know, quite happy, you know, in the final, in this, you know, I hadn't been in the final of nationals since I was 12, funny enough. So I had a whole period of time. So this was actually, um, it was quite, a, it's a nice end to the story because it started at 12, went off the rail, not went off the rails, was basically written off and spent, you know, another sort of five, six years developing. And here I was back in the finals again um having been sort of written off and anyway but i remember thinking um it spurred me on to my professional career because he took me he says oh he says he says jimmy he says you know i, I quite like the way you serve but man you move like a cart horse i was like oh wow okay and, you know that, that is it like straight in that's his first bit of feedback i was like okay um i've got i've got, I've got to play a final tomorrow i'm not quite sure what to do with that um but that but but i tell you what but it, it wasn't said in a nasty way it was it was meant to try and encouraged me and I'll tell you what when he, we started talking about Stefan Edberg and how he saw him and how um movement and his athletic ability was the first thing that drew him to Stefan not his tennis ability and and that actually inspired me to start working more on my physical side and so, so you know those those you know they, they can they can be encouragements and they can be taken positively but it's up to the individual to to, to use those as they do not everyone is a Michael Jordan but you know you can you, you can take negative situations and use them positively I think that's, that's the lesson there and I think the big thing for me also on this is it goes back to connecting to a purpose. You know, I had a, I had a talk with a player um, last night and what I was telling him that, you know, I would have a really clear purpose and clear vision of what I want to be, you know, and I'll, I'll not talk about it on the podcast, but I have a real clear visual of that in two or three years and I can picture me in a certain place. So, and that represents quite a lot of things for me that then, gets me out of bed in the morning, gets me working long hours, you know, puts me, and, and what came through from the player last night, he couldn't do that, but what he could do is he could paint a really clear picture of what he didn't want to be. And so, so what we it did- can be just we, as powerful, it can be just as absolutely, powerful. Absolutely, yeah. So we packaged that up. And, and again, to share on the podcast, one of the things he said is he said, I just don't want to be basically a mess up who's working at McDonald's and doing something I hate. And so like, I think I'm going to buy him and my brother works for McDonald's. So I think I'm going <laughs> yeah, to yeah. get him a McDonald's top and, you yeah. know, hang it in his room and, and, and wake up in the morning when he's about to make that bad decision and go out with his mates on the weekend and miss tennis on Saturday. Hey mate, there's your McDonald's top. That's what you're saying. You don't want to be, you don't want to be, that guy. So I, I, I think that the takeaway from me, and I, and I suppose from that, I think it's a really nice little conversation to have there is, is about the importance of having something that, that motivates you, yeah, that motivates yeah. you, that you've got, you've got that purpose to really connect to. And uh, when you were one, one question I've always had in my head with you Orcs as well, we might've talked about it over, over the years, um, especially on some of our road trips in America, which we'll have to get to in a minute as well. But I think, I think we should leave that conversation out. Actually. <laughs> I think I've told that story maybe on one of the podcasts already <laughs> is, is um, why didn't you go to a U.S. college? Because I guess you were probably primed for that, actually. You know, you would you would have been amazing. You had the game, you had the personality, um, and probably you had the ranking that would be more suited for US college rather than starting on the pro tour at that time. 
Yeah, no, it's, and if I'm honest, I mean, looking back, it was, I don't know, whether it's a, a, a it's hard to say have great, I don't have many regrets. I, I don't know if it, I'd call it a regret not going to US college, but um, I mean, whether, whether or not you you were aware or not, I mean, I actually, I had a pl- I had two places. I had a place at LSU yeah, uh, through, with, with, with Jeff Brown, uh, we were speaking to, uh, had a, and a place at Malibu as well, uh, at Pepperdine. And um, I think LSU was going to be my choice, um, partly because I knew you were there or you were going mm-hmm. there. Um, and I'd heard good things about it. Uh, I hadn't done the trip, but I was basically going to go cold and, and try it out. And it was all set. I mean, I literally, I think I was doing the sats and I um, I think we were talking about booking a flight. So we're talking, you know, weeks, if not more less than, than going out there. And then literally out of, let's say out of the blue, I get a call from Jeremy Bates, who was head of men's tennis at the time. And he said, look, James, um, you started to make some good progress uh, this year. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, you're, obviously you're leaving school. We'd like to, you know, consider, you know, you know, tennis as a full-time option as I know you, you have been um, but how serious are you and and do you want to be part of the Lang squad and, and for those listeners who didn't know what the Lang the Lang squad was probably uh, it was a pretty it's probably the most well, it was the only full-time national squad at the time so it's sponsored by Lang the building contractors all the full-time players that had uh, Arvin Palmer, Marty Lee, uh, Miles McLagan it, it, basically if you were um, outside of Tim Henman, it, you know, it, it was the next sort of four or five players, and I had an opportunity to be fully funded as a touring player um, for a guaranteed of at least two to three years, two years as it was. And obviously, my you know my my background and my parents' background was one where we we didn't come from a background with a lot of money, and um, so you know to have that carrot dangled that you have you know all your training and travel funded fully for two years. That was, if I'm honest, I, 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 it, it swayed me. And, and I think my mentality at the time, I think the only thing that swung it was that, you know, in terms of university, and I think I put education. So I did quite well in my A-levels and I thought, okay, education is something I could potentially come back to. Um, but what I didn't take into consideration now in, in, in reflection is that actually what you can't go back to is the tennis, is the experience and the development of being part of uh, a college team and the things that go with it. Because once you've had a year out, as a pro, you, you you know the rules. You then can't go back in as as as, uh, or maybe you can have a year, but you have to stay an amateur. I think that there's, there's a few rules around it. But at that time, I didn't quite understand really the implications of going full time and how that would have restricted me going back potentially onto a, a US college. So had I had my time again, possibly I would have made a different decision. But um, it's hard to say if it was a regret or not because I end up doing okay and I have a lot of fond, you know, positive experiences as a professional player. Could I've done better if i'd gone to university first I, I, it's really hard to tell I, I don't know if i can call that four years me and you playing doubles at lsu imagine how good we would have been together <laughs> at the end you know what i mean come on oh, no, well, well I, would, I would be sitting here in guilford and you and soto would be in the bahamas so we'd, we'd probably oh. still be playing actually we'd probably still be oh be 2 yeah we'd be we'd be we'd be at the intercontinental right now um, this is a hard conversation but, for me all <laughs> You messed my life up, man. Do you know what I mean? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, Jeremy Bates did. Jeremy Bates did. Yeah, yeah. If, if in doubt, blame Jeremy. <laughs> but that's, but that's, but I guess even like listening to you there, because I had a similar thing where I was training at Queen's 
I I I know that I wasn't. I was training at Bolton. I'd come I'd come out of college. I was playing. I was doing all right. I'd run a futures in singles. Doubles was going really well. And I kind of got told, Dan, you're only 700 in the world singles. Like you're 23. What are you doing? Just play doubles type of thing. And then it was almost like, oh, that's been said by the federation. That's what that must be right. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. then and then we were training at Bolton and it was going really well. And then all of us were like, you now need to go and train down at Queen's. And I was the only one out of that group that didn't just go, oh, okay, that sounds great. I'll do that. Because yeah. I was like, well, hold on, why? It's working for me. This is working yeah. really well for me. And, and I've got a few questions, if you don't mind. And I said, who's going to be my coach? Kind of could be a decent question to ask. Who, you know, who am I going to be training with? Because the way that I play, I don't want to be stuck playing with Jamie Delgado who wants to hit two cross one line all day. You know, I want to, I want to be training in the way that I want to play. I want to, I want to be serve volley and I want to be playing forward tennis. And, and the reply was, stop being so fussy with questions like that. Do you want to come or do you not want to come? And, and, and I think this is where I'm sure, well, it has. It's a much more sophisticated now because even listening to your story, Oaks, age 12, you won a tournament. Okay, now you can come to the National, National Tennis Centre without yeah. a whole lot of thought because two years later, they kicked you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They didn't believe in you that much. Then you're about to get on a flight to go to US college and it's like, actually, we've got an extra space come available, you know? Yeah. And, and it was almost in the culture that that's what was said. And I think a bit like what, I guess, the PTPA are doing now with the ATP. And it's kind of coming to me as we're talking. There needs to be that second voice. There needs to be that ability for players to question, you know, scrutinize. Why? Why am I? Don't just go to the National Academy. Why am I going there? You know, what's going to be better for me there? You know, and, and it might be amazing for you, but I, I think... Players have to have that voice. And that's something that I think in our era, we didn't. We were like puppy dogs and we were just yeah. kind of pulled along on a string. And, and it's, I guess it's a, it's a big reflection of mine. And it's something that I really hope is happening now. I believe it is. I believe that you know, we've had Ian Bates, Leon Smith. We've had these guys on the podcast. And I think they are really listening and talking to players a lot more than what used to happen with us. Um, but that, that has to happen. You know, you have to have your, and it might've been the right thing for you and you've gone on and you've had a good career, but maybe it wasn't right for you, but it, the way that it's happened a bit last minute. Yeah. And I do also, I think, I think one of the key people who actually probably helped that transition uh, would actually be Andy. I mean, here's a guy, uh, I think he helped change that culture because if I'm honest, he's one of the first, I mean, he, he, he didn't follow the part. He, he did his own thing and, and from quite an early age, as a strong-headed person, he he knew what he wanted, and and he went after it, and you know, sod everyone else, um, and it, and it almost took that kind of person, and 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 the success that came off the back of that, of him him doing things his way, um, to then say, oh, hang on a minute, that someone's done something which isn't by our methodology and our and and it's been really successful. Okay, we, we need we need to take a step back here and look at how we do things. And I think and I think he's helped change the culture amongst many other things. But that's I think he had a real impact there. No, no, absolutely. And how was your playing career? How was your pro playing career? How was the transition from going from being a, someone playing junior events to now playing senior events? What were the challenges? What were the things that you did well? The regrets? 
Yeah, I mean, towards it, it was um, a bit like my, the junior days. Is very, very up and down. So uh, it almost, almost had a repeat of history from from my Bisham days. So uh, you, you join this squad, everything paid for. Here you go. And and I really struggled. I, I did get injured badly. I fractured my spine. Had two hairline fractures. So that took nine months of that first two years, pretty much without really sort of traveling and doing much. Um, so that was a setback. Um, and 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 again, basically after two years still without an ATP point. And so you've got, you've got, you've got oh, Hilton. Wow. Yeah. So you've got, you've got Hilton, Mark Hilton, who winning futures. You've got Simon Dixon winning futures. Hilton making semis of challenges. Um, and all these other, Dave Sherwood, yourself, you know, all these, you know, these guys coming through, but I didn't get my first point till I was in sort of 20, maybe was I 21. I think I, I was either 20 or 21, but I had two. Uh, so I was unranked with no ranking at the age of 20. Um, and so sure enough, it's like, okay, it's, it's, this isn't what, you know, we, we can't help you. Um, and it wasn't until I always had the, that, that funding revoked, that it kind of spurred me. I was like, oh, you know, and I don't know whether it was uh, a conscious thought or a conscious effort, but suddenly when you're on your own, you're doing things off your own back, uh, it, you know, I started, you know, again, I went back to the home environment, back to my home coach. Okay, let's make a plan. Who do we, how do we, how do we tackle this? And I, and I did the same thing again. Okay, I made a list of what I wanted to do and achieve, and and how it was, and then and then I had a, it gave myself a, a new purpose to try and prove them wrong, so to speak. And 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 then and then it started to really sort of click together in those two years and started traveling, and I started being much more successful on internationally than I was domestically. Um, Hilts used to clean up every futures on on the British shores, but um, I always started. I went a bit further afield, and I started to quit doing quite well in Asia and Africa. Um, and that was where, you know, sort of inverted the easy points, but it gave me a confidence. And then I came back and I started doing more in Europe. And then we went to the States, as we said, in those sort of early, sort of yeah. 2003, 2004. And that was really where it started to pick up. So I definitely matured later. Um, Bobby really didn't sort of, you know, yeah, so 20, yeah, 22, eight, yeah, 2002 was probably when I started to really sort of, I think I went from 700 to 300. In, in, in that one year and that had a real sort of role of, of, of um, belief in, in my ability and that, that's really where it started to click into probably 2002, 2003, yeah. It's fascinating. You're fascinating me, Oaks, because <laughs> you, the reason you're fascinating me is like, is the pattern of it, like the, the, the pattern of what's happened. And I want to try and unravel this a little bit, this like, because I think it's common. I think I don't think it's like that you're unique in this. I think this is common. And it's one of the things I tried to dig under the bonnet with Ian Bates on last week of why we have to be so careful how we support our players. Yeah. Because you're a conscientious Matt, young boy. You were even when you were a lad. Okay, you've probably matured a bit more now. I'll give you that. But yet on two occasions when you've been given the kitchen sink, it hasn't worked for you. <laughs> and, it, and I'm not sure it works for many people. So why do you think it didn't work for you? Um, well, you see, it did, didn't work for me in terms of the, um, oh, oh, you You're, mean but the, the, um, the all singing, all dancing? Um, yeah, it hasn't worked. Bishop, you went to Bisham and you didn't necessarily improve or, or get yeah, the results. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good challenge. And then, and, then, and, then the, and then the Lang squad, the same, the same thing. So what, what was, why didn't it work? I think it's a really good question. I think maybe the, um, for lack of a better phrase, it, too easy. 
we weren't you weren't fighting enough i mean we, you, you you see a lot of people talking and 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 even now instance of people coming out of russia and eastern bloc and some, some real hard places and and you know where they haven't been given a lot and they're fighting for everything and it's, it's probably a little bit about that you know you, um so when everything is given to you on a plate it's it's probably that little bit easier um to uh to accept failure for lack of a better term so if you go to a tournament and uh and you lose first round second round oh it's okay i've got my flight home paid for you, you, i tell you what you, you but you, you're out on your own if you don't make quarters you you know you're losing money in fact you, you know, you're not you're not making it to the next week that you plan to play on because you haven't got enough money to you know to, to, get, to get the flight to get there um and you know and and uh, so when you're when 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 the chips are down and you're forced to really do things the right way maybe you train that a little bit harder you, a little bit longer you, you you go the extra minute you start scouting players because you know because it matters now to know whether you're going to win or lose and, and what does that player look like and, and who you know how are you going to beat this guy and, and you started to learn your craft more as a, as, as a player and again scouting was something that was it something that i didn't do to way later and i learned it way too late um and it, it yeah it wasn't really ingrained in us in in in, in, in that in that culture and environment because everything was just handed to us um and it wasn't good it wasn't good for for me particularly it might work for some other people but um so when you're yeah so when you're when you're up against it and you're having to fend for yourself um it, that, that, that really matter and, and, and the fact that when you got some success off the back of your own application that was really rewarding as well oh i did this and i did this on my own okay i i, I found you know i raised some money and they got the flight and i went there and boom and and and, and, and okay I, that, and that, that's that that, that, really, that was really worth worthwhile as well what do you mean like real life do you know what i mean and, and this is my yeah. this is my thing on it orcs we're talking about 20 25 years ago it still happens and it's not yeah. it's not to put this on any one person because i think it's it's and ian Baird said it very well it's the cultural norm it's mm. the cultural norm of british tennis it's not the cultural norm of the world of tennis the world the world of tennis knows all about accountability what you're talking about is accountability absolutely if you don't, if you don't have accountability you you breed entitlement. Yeah. You breed that extra little five percent of just taking you taking your foot off the gas. I've got numerous stories of like boys who were were funded going and getting taxis and dropping off shopping and then go back to their nice hotel and no, I don't we don't want to carry the bags to dinner. It's okay. I'll put. The, it's entitlement is what it is, and it's and, and there's no accountability for what people are doing. Whereas the rest of the world has that in abundance. So yeah. how are we as a nation ever going to truly compete with with that like minor players? Because it's not just the, Ru the the Russian type countries that either it's you know and even and I, we had Anne on the on the show last week. She talked about coming from Hackney, and that was their family. You know their family values were how are we going to work to get out of this. Mm. Not she didn't become a tennis player because she was handed things. She became a tennis player because she was working out. You became a tennis player because you wanted to prove people wrong a little bit and you wanted to show that actually I can do this. I've had people that have taken me and I've dropped people, which is absolutely the right way to respond. Mm. Whereas a lot of players, Ollie Golding, George Morgan, Simon Dixon, Lee Childs, you might not thank me for saying it, but he, I've got conversations with, with Chinky as well. The second mm. that the funding was taken, he pretty much stopped. You know, James Nelson, 
You know, the mm. list the list will go on of, of the, and I'm talking about male players, not because I don't care about the females. I just know their stories better yeah. because yeah. they're my, because they're my peer group. These are all genuine world-class tennis players that because they were given too much, they actually then underachieved in my opinion. Now you were lucky. You were lucky. Oh, that you, and I was you lucky. Out because yeah. you got out. Yeah. And I, I think, I think you're right. I mean, in terms of okay what do we do as, as a nation i mean there's the magic question i think um I, I think if i look if i look back at the times where there were signs of our national game as a whole improving i think i think a couple of things had in place i think um there's a, there's a time when there was a lot of independent squads where, where, where you could as a player as a full-time player you had the choice as to which squad you felt you could go to, you said you you mentioned Bolton, but you you got, you got Hicks here at Wrexham. You had um, you had Nigel Sears, um, yeah. that's that Luke Milligan who, who was there, um, and you had another. I think Dave Ison had one at Cambridge. You had, you had a number of different squads and options, and and basically depending on your situation, your personality, and your relationship with the the players on there on the squad, you you could you could um, Leighton Alfred in in, in, in Nottingham to name another one. Great great coach, great setup. And, and you could you could you could pick and choose where you chose to train. And I think that was actually really useful because it 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 played to the players' um, individuality and, and and knowing that different paths are different for everyone. And so uh, and you and the goal is that you, you you hope you chose the the, the coach that, that shared your values or you you could certainly share his. And you had and you had a shared vision for your own personal development, which goes back to your original point that everyone's path is different. Um, and and so, so I think that would be that 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 really helped. Um, and then that stopped um, again out of nowhere. And and the other time was actually um, you could say it, it was helpful or not. We had a lot of um, a lot of competitions. I think there's a time. Um, in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, when all of a sudden um, there, there was a lot of international events and allowed um, the young developing early people early in their professional career the opportunity to play at an international level and have international players come to them. Um, and um, yeah, there was, there's an opportunity to see where you are in the world. I think I remember Hussey and his podcast talking about you know you had to go outside of australia a long way to to understand what the world of tennis actually looks like mm. um and and it goes back to our point about saying you know if you set your goals um too narrow-minded or oh, i want to be number one in britain or i want to be this guy i want to beat this guy in the big scheme of things that means absolutely nothing yeah. i mean what i mean who who, who cares yeah. so you know there's a bigger world of tennis out there so just having some of those international events and seeing, oh wow, these geez, this guy from Czech, he's wow, I've never seen anyone hit a backhand like this, but you know, and look how this guy fights and competes, and just and just seeing the bigger world of tennis um and have an opportunity to play. It, it raised the bar and 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 I think that really helped. We had it, we had, I think at, during that time we had the highest amount of British players inside 350. I think mm -hmm. there must be 12 or 30. I don't know what the current stats are, I haven't seen the rankings, but it's been a while since we've had 15, 12, 15 guys inside 350. Yeah. Um, we, okay, we only had one or two top hundred. We've got more now, which is brilliant. But I think there's a, yeah, there's there's never any one thing that you can put your finger on which is going to change British things. No, it's British not. Things. But but what you're saying, and, and and I think, so so for me, when your back's against the wall in general, people tend to produce. You know, there's that kind of. There's that that percentage. If you're pushed into that area and you know you have to, you have or, to reduce. Or, or, or not, or we can go the other way. So you could you could argue actually that 
you, you need those challenges to actually, you know, you know strip out the, the guys who are cut out for it. Because it's a tough world out there in, in, in the tennis world. Yeah, but it's life as well. But I'm even talking about from a life perspective. Mm. If, if the back's against the wall to feed your family... You go, you, find work, a way. you go and work long shifts or you, yeah. you know, you create opportunity or you, you know, you push things because what you talked about there, and I think you're exactly right, the independent squads. Now we talked about the independent, you talked about the independent squads. You could probably name five or six in the UK. And I completely agree. Now what that ecosystem creates is it, it creates choice. So now it creates accountability again on both sides because the coaches are accountable to perform to a high level because the player has choice. <laughs> and if you do, if you don't do well, people aren't going to want to come to your squad either. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. if you're not producing, then you know that's going to that's going to they're going to go elsewhere. And at the same time, if I've got a squad that is producing and you come along and you're not working your nuts off, then yeah. I'm going to say, well, actually, mate, you're affecting my environment. So now, what you've described there, and this is the thing that's fascinating to me. Within Andalusia, the region of Spain I'm in, there's probably 75 of them. Wow. In Spain, there's probably genuinely 500. That's every crazy. year, every year. Do you know what I mean? Not yeah. just, not just some sometimes, not just in a in a part of, but but the whole time. So so what there is is there's just such a strong accountability across the board. If you don't do your job, your players leave because they've got so many other choices. Yeah. And, and, and this is, I think, the bit, and Dave Samuel spoke very well on this on the podcast last week. He talks about, about the Federation being facilitators. So, okay, we are fortunate that, that, that the Federation has large amounts of funds, so can that be used to enhance the, the accountability by putting bonus schemes in place? So mm. if my squad is producing, then I then they get more money coming to the squad. But then if I take my foot off the gas, then the players will start going to your squad. So we mm. have to, so we're, we're in that constant competition. And that goes back to my point when you pushed into that two, three percent at the edge, that's when you perform to the little extra. You know, and it takes quite a special person to be given the world at a young age, yet and then, and then still drive, have the drive, yeah. you know, still have that, because we know that that's where it counts. You were an amazing player. There's so many amazing players, but the ones that truly get there, the ones that have the extra little two, three percent that can get their backsides out of bed and they can say no to the night out and they can whatever it might be because they've mm. got a little extra. I don't know if it. I don't know if it makes sense to the, you guys listening, but I think again, it's a nice, a, a nice slant on on the conversation, Orcs. You, the doubles player. When did that? Was that decision made? Why was that decision made? Yeah, it's a. Uh, it, it was a kind of a. I would say it was a natural transition, but my um, my game, like yours, was a, a front court player. You know, I, I had a, a good serve. Um, and my my volley game was improving, so my, my and um, it certainly adhered. So when I, nat, doubles came quite naturally, uh, I think like like anyone else, I like all other tennis players. You go out with the dream of of playing singles, um, and just over the course of years, essentially what happened is as as you travel and play tournaments, and your singles ranking gradually gets up, and you maybe you play, go from futures and challenges. What was happening is that 
I was started to do uh, better Evo's tournaments in doubles. I would make, yeah, I might lose first, second round of singles, but I might make semis of doubles. Also, you do that enough times, your doubles ranking gets up higher than your singles ranking. And that, that continued for a number of years up to about sort of the, the sort of mid 2000s. So I got to a point where as I was probably about, like I said, two, 280, 300 in um, singles, but my doubles was 110. 110. And, and so now I'm knocking on the door of, of, of top 100 and I started to think to myself, well, okay, I've got, I've got a couple of options now. Um, and, and, the, and the question I had to ask myself is, do I, do I have the belief in myself to, to really drive and push for singles in an attempt to get where I wanted to be, which at that time would have been a top 100 player? Because we, we knew nothing else. In our minds, we grew up thinking, oh, I've got to be a top 100 tennis player. Um, looking back again, that's too limiting, but we'll come to that, I guess. Um, and, um, but obviously, at, at 110, 120 in, in doubles, it's thinking, okay, well, actually, I can have a, if I make a push here, it's actually not that far away from actually getting to um, one break a, a goal of mine, um, but also the chance to play the bigger tournaments. And as, as a young player growing up, our goal was always to play, or my goal, um, I should say, was, was always to play the bigger events, the Grand Slams. And, uh, and I had an opportunity to potentially do that more in doubles than I did singles. And I took a couple of chances and, um, and, and, and scraped some partners together and, and, and had some good wins and managed to make a little breakthrough to allow myself to do that. And it was at that point where I took, and it basically, as I made that decision, I, I decided to take doubles more seriously and see it as a, as a, as a career path, which at, at the time, not many, I think, in fact, I think it's probably only me and you, I think you probably did a similar thing um, to, so together, and to be honest, that's how we sort of came together, really, in that in that partnership. Because I think we were probably the only first two players to consider doubles as a as a career path, as opposed to you know adding it on to something that we're trying to do with singles. Um, which kind of and, and Louis talks about it now. You know, we, we sort of paved the way for you know the, the way the doubles has kind of seen and 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 gone about ways now. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's an, it was a really interesting time, and I think. Yeah, certainly I when I made the decision and, and I only I didn't make the decision for long. I didn't actually play for very long as a doubles player, but when I made the decision, it was almost frowned upon. Yeah. It wasn't there wasn't a path. There hadn't been really a path that was made. Certainly in it's a similar point to what we're making now, uh, making previously. It's like we almost need people to to make those paths for us. It's quite hard to be the leader in that in in that path. And and I remember starting to do it, and I felt not many people had respect for me doing and, it. And, that, and that's the thing. Doubles was always seen, and to a certain extent, you could argue today still is to some expect, you know respect, you know, because it's not your you know your showtime um, part of the sport. Um, it's not prime time. It's not. It's not what the, a lot of the top players are, are, are playing. And it's not as high end, and it's not as as, as well earned. But it's still a, a big part of the game. And I think, um, yeah, that, that lack of respect. Oh, we oh, we just plays doubles. Oh, he just does that. And that that, that 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 comment has always been sort of thrown out. But it it rung in my ear. And, and also with that again, <laughs> going back to things that spurred you on, it kind of made me think. Okay, well, right. Well, at what at what stage will that not happen? What mm -hmm. when will people uh, you know what ranking do I have to? Uh, how many, how many Grand Slam matches do I have to win for someone to to say, oh, he's just a doubles player, rather than oh, you know, he's oh, he's a doubles player. You know, and, and that and so that was a motivating factor for me as well. Yeah, and what was what was probably my career high 
was, I guess, a starting point almost for you. And and I'd like to kind of get into a little bit of that discussion on, you know, first of all, we have to relive our our memory, you know. Of- we, we, this, this podcast is all, it's always come to this, but it's come to the point where we get to talk about the Wimbledon win. The, the, the <laughs> first match. This, this is, is it. <laughs> episode episode eighty one has yeah, all yeah. It's, it's all been leading here. All yeah. all, all roads, all lights have been leading to this point. So strap yourselves in, guys. Listen to the egos of Dan Keenan and James Auckland for the next five minutes. If you don't yeah. want to hear it, fast forward the next five minutes. Yeah, yeah. I, I do feel for your players. I wonder how many, how, many, how many stories have been recalled from your days at Wimbledon. Field. Well, when I was two sets down, you know, is that, yeah. It's it's uh, also, well, I, it it's also probably been embellished in a few words, so in a few different ways. So it'd be interesting to, to get your take on, on that Wimbledon um, before I embarrass myself and give my version, which might have been embellished a little bit. <laughs> So 2005, Wimbledon. I'm going to set the scene. You set the scene. I was playing doubles with David Sherwood for for many, many, many years. And if we go back to February of 2005, um, and I'm going to get Dave on there, and I'm going to nail Dave Sherwood when he's on there. I'm not going to give him an easy time on this podcast. Um, Dave wasn't taking it overly seriously, let's say. Um, and it was actually, it was a night match. We were in the semi-finals in, in Germany in a, in a challenger. And I was trying to make my push. You know, I, at that point, I was trying to, and, and really you need to be winning challengers, as you know, at that sort of point. Yeah. Um, and he was turning up on... Is this court. Wolfsburg? I think I was at that tournament. Is this Wolfsburg? Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg. I do remember this, yeah. And we're playing Koreshi and Zovko. Yeah. Okay? And Zovko's injured. So this is like, it's a big chance, you know, semi-finals, you get to a final. And anyway, Dave strolls in at seven in the morning, the day of the match. And I'm like, oh my God. So we so we walk on the court for our warm-up. Dave is air-shotting. He's air-shotting balls. Like, he is, he is nowhere to be seen on this tennis court. Zovko's serving at 20 miles an hour. And this match starts... And after three games, me and Dave are having a full-blown argument on the court. (laughs) Full-blown. Like, I'm screaming at him. What are you doing? You can't even see the ball. You're wasting all of this kind of stuff. The next day, Davis Cup announcement comes out. And Dave Sherwood has been selected as the doubles player (laughs) to play doubles with, with, as we now know him, Sir Andy Murray. And I'm like, who's that little scrawny 17-year-old being picked for Davis Cup for? Do you know what I mean? And and a couple of weeks later, Sherwood and Murray beat Ehrlich Ram, top 10 team in the world. And me and you picked up our relationship to play in Sunderland 10K. (laughs) (laughs) And I I actually remember this because and I was looking at results last night. We had a good win in the first round against... Dominic Methart and Philip Hammer. And Method ended up being like a, a top 100 player. And then we had we lost to Rob Green and his partner. Okay, Bobby, Green, Bobby Green, all respect to you, mate. But when my partner's <laughs> playing Davis Cup, that was a heartbreaker. And, and I remember we lost to Rob Green and then I was watching Dave and Murray play Davis Cup and win this big event, which was probably quite a difficult moment for me. But a couple of weeks after that, I was told Sherwood's going to play with Andy Murray at Wimbledon that year. 
So that's when we then picked up our, our phone call um, and talking about proving people wrong. Yeah, Sher Sherwood and Murray lost first round that year. But anyway, we will get that chip off our shoulder. So now over <laughs> now over to your your account of 2005 Wimbledon. No, I mean, that's weird. So thanks for that background. I actually should have gotten a, a, a lot of that, but I do remember Wolfsburg because I, I was there as well. I can't remember who I was playing with or what happened, but I do remember Dave. It wasn't probably the first time that Dave, um, at, least he, at least he turned up to a match. I had a tournament <laughs> in India. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to bring it into the podcast now where he actually left the country. I was actually, we were about to, I, I, we, we, we would have won the satellite. I was leading the satellite. And um, and all we had to do was play one match, and and he, he wasn't in the hotel. And I just remember saying, "Where where where is he?" And then I get I get a text. He says, "I'm at the airport." I said, "What do you mean you're at the airport?" He said, "Oh no, I can't do it. I can't do another week." I said, "I can't do another week. We did, we're in Masters." And he, and he, and he left on that. Yeah, and so I, I lost I lost another like twenty ATP points because of that guy. So um, yeah, so at least mate, at least he turned up on court. Um, but anyway, that's uh, a story for another time. But you know, 2005. So my, we, we'd worked hard. I think we, we, I felt we'd earned our right to get the wild card, and we did need a wild card because our, our rankings combined weren't enough to get in at that time. Um, but I think combined we were second, maybe highest team in the draw. So I think we we, we earned it on that right. And um, um, if I'm honest, I I I I, I can't remember. <laughs> Obviously, it's a long match, and I remember it was sweltering hot. It must be about 30 degrees. It was on a back court, maybe 11, somewhere out the back there. Um, but it was a tough draw. Uh, Hung Taik Lee and yeah. Kevin Kim. I mean, we, we're talking, I mean, Hung Taik Lee was seeded maybe 25 in singles that year. Yeah. I mean, he was good. He was a top 20, top 30 player. Um, he actually, he might have even got to 12. I can't remember. But um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a good match, uh, good, um, good, good, good players. And I remember thinking we went down two sets relatively quickly. And I think we, we, I think, and not even playing that badly. I remember yeah. thinking it was, um, we were competitive, but there was, there was something missed, something wasn't there. We were at a break here or there, a point here and there. But that's at that stage, you know, you, you probably don't appreciate those, the, the, those little things matter. And I remember after, at the end of the second set, I mean, you were fuming, you were pissed. Um, and um, and uh, I said, oh, I think I said to you, I said, look, go to the toilet i said go go off go off you know and i think you went you took a toilet break to change your shirt or something or you might not have even need the toilet i can't remember but and, and i said and i actually remember i said to myself when he comes back um well, I'm, I'm gonna try and change the tone of it i'm gonna try we're gonna be we're gonna be positive and we're gonna we're gonna i'm gonna we're trying i'm gonna, I'm trying to try and make a, a mental decision to only um I, I get, yeah, try and change the energy. We, yeah. You know, two sets down, and I'm I'm loving that this series is called Control with Controllables because that's all we could do. So all we, we had no control over the score, um, we had no control over who our opponents are and what they could do. But what we could do, and the things that I think we backed ourselves, we we, we both backed our volleys and we both backed our serves. We I, I was my my returning. If I'm honest, my return is a here or there. I mean, I'm either hot or cold. I had no sort of sense of. Um, you know, continuity of, of consistency of, of ability. So I, it was, it was, yeah, depending on what day you got me on, um, and um, and you were probably a little bit more steady than I was on the return. But we backed our serve. And we backed. Our serve. So I said, okay, let's. If we're going to go out here, we're not. We're not losing our serve. We're not going. We're going to hold six games, and we're going to take the tie break, and we're going to see what happens. And and I think that's where it started. We we held serve. We held serve. We held serve, and we we scraped a break from somewhere. Um, probably through your steady returning. And, and a bit of boldness and, and, and you know, we got a set. And it, as soon as we got that one set on the board, 
I remember thinking for the first time, at, and no real reason, because it's just one set, thinking, okay, I feel good now. Because, mm-hmm. uh, and, I was, and, I, and I was starting to feel it from their perspective. I was like, you know, late end of the day, they're playing two wild cards, two British guys they've never heard of. They probably think we're absolutely terrible. Um, and here they are, they've just lost a set of, they're 30 minutes away from being in the showers. And I love the fact that I was keeping them out there and that, you know, we were, we were both, you know, together, you know, together. We had our friends and our family and our busload of mates down having a few drinks and getting rowdy in the crowd, all of which, you know, the energy is building. And, and the longer that match went on, I'm thinking these guys are going to get more and more down. And you just saw the energy mm-hmm. change. And I remember seeing them just getting more down hard and it just spurred me on even more. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and our energy together grew. Um, and, and, and in the end, we, um, we yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, I think it turned on on a break point. We were break point down in the fifth, and I, and and there was there was one, and we we saved it with a smash. And I think at that point on, there was no yeah. I just knew I, I knew we'd had it, although I was absolutely cacking it on match point. I, I can't remember. I remember you. T- I, 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 I do remember. Do you remember match point? Well, I remember. You were serving, right? Yeah. So I remember exactly right. You've told it really well, and it's and, and I also remember the year before I'd played and I and I choked the year before at Wimbledon. I I hadn't I hadn't managed the nerves. I never settled. I actually served on a on a, I served at six five in the first set on a set point and hit like probably twenty two mile an hour second serve. You know, yeah. something that that her batty just hit a winner past me and that was gone. And, and, but I just remember as that match went on, really feeling more and more good, exactly how you said. And then I remember I was serving a 5-4 in the fifth set. And I remember looking at you. Not 5-3, we had three or three match points, I think, on their serve. And we didn't, we didn't break. We didn't get the break. And then I'm serving at 5-4. But for some reason, I remember having a real, almost like the clearest moment in my career. Not that my career was, like I said, this was the highlight. This is more diluted for you because you had, you had a lot more highlights. It's a key moment for everyone's first Wimbledon wins. Yeah. And, and I looked at you and I remember thinking, he's a bit green here. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, he looks a bit like nervous. And and we went 40 love up. We played a good game, like good first serves. And then I think you missed a volley, maybe at 40. 50. Yeah, no, I might missed it. I know it went back to 40 30. And, and, and then I know that our match point, I remember there was a, I had a decent serve. And the guy high technically had a great return, and I managed to kind of scrape a volley. And then I think Kim then skied one long. And my thing on it, and this was like the moment that I will relive forever, is you went from being a nervous wreck. <laughs> to owning Wimbledon. <laughs> it was like, it's almost as soon as that ball went out, you just turned into, and it was shook hands, and you just took over. And you were like clapping that corner, that corner. You, <laughs> you, you couldn't have like expressed yourself and looked any we won, more confident. We won Wimbledon at that, that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any more confident. But no, it was a great memory. And then my, my other memory, and this is sport, this also kind of shows sport up. We got into the changing rooms and two of our best mates, Johnny Murray and Mark Hilton, we were kind of completely ecstatic and they looked as if they'd just come from a funeral. And it was like, they completely brought our energy down and it was like, what's happened boys? And they were like, we just served for the match against Karlovic and Vassen. 5-4, 40-15, it's now 5-all. And we've come <laughs> off and we've come off a bad light. Oh. And, and they were in such a bad state. <laughs> and, um, 
and they never got over it and they never accepted it. I think they lost eight out of eight points the next day when yeah, they went no. out there. And then obviously we had the the amazing experience of, of playing the Bryans and um, yeah, no, mate, it's it's something that was very special to go through that experience with you. What a day. It was. <laughs> and and then from there, I kind of we we actually did pretty well, I think, in challenges that summer. We had a, we made, made a couple of finals in Spain. I decided for for a few different reasons it's time for me to to move into the next part of my life. Then it seemed like you just went from strength to strength. And I have to ask you, Louis Kaya, I think, arrived like three or four months after that, actually. It was very close to it. We were just playing doubles on feel, you know, what we felt, you know, what that feels right, yeah. move there, hit that. How big of an influence and how much has he changed or did he change your outlook on, on the sport of doubles? I mean, 100% he changed... Uh, my outlook on the sport, how you approach, how you train it. If, if I'm honest, but my um, he came to, but he was actually working with Jamie uh, at the time. So Jamie was also um, after that year um, was starting. Also, he'd seen us sort of trying to see, take doubles as a career, and I think he kind of followed suit. And so he and then Colin Fleming at the time were looking um, at trying to take it more seriously, and. Um, the, you know the Murrays being the Murrays they, they they want to do something to the best they absolutely could um and this is one of the reasons why they're so successful because you know if I want to get to number one in the world what do I have to do okay well who's the best doubles coach in the world and so they they went and and, and he, they sort of basically employed and brought Louis over so it was actually Judy and the Murrays that brought Louis into the country um but I to be honest, I didn't start working with Louis until I was about I was already 60 in the world okay. so I had a I had like a year and a bit um, as, as you described, it's a good it's sort of trying to feel it's playing um, the doubles the way I thought it should be played, and um, it, I was quite raw. Um, and I think I think in in one respect, it's quite it's quite good to have that because also you, if you're quite new on the scene, no one really knows how to play. No one really knows you, so you have an opportunity. Even though some people say um, oh, it's really tough to break through, but if you make those early games, you can actually make some quite quick games because. A lot of the people on the tour and the doubles players, particularly, they're playing each other week in, week out, and all of a sudden there's a couple of new guys on, and they're like, well, "What do these guys do?" And it's a bit of an unknown quantity, um, and so you, you can you can use that to your benefit, and that, that helped me a little bit. And I had a good I had a good year um, the following year um, with Andy. We started playing. We played um, our, my first tour match with Andy, and then we played the French together, and we, we formed a, a friendship there. And, and also, you know, vote that, and then also make then making third round uh, with Delgi the, the following year, um, defending the points that we won, and then building on that and again. That that that, and I think St. Petersburg actually was uh, were, were, were things that sort of pushed me forward yeah. into the sort of sixties, um, and that that and it was at that point that I started working with Louis. And twelfth of June, two thousand and six, what happened? <laughs> It was. I wasn't quite sure what you're going to say, but I was thinking, oh, oh no, who, who did I upset that day? Um, but I think that 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 sounds like that's during Queens. Yep. There we go. So I, I guess you're going to refer to it. It's it's a good win. So we played. Um, so I played. Uh, agreed to play with uh, Jamie Delgado, and we again we we didn't get in on ranking, but we were the highest ranking British pair at the time who had entered. So we got fortunate enough to get a wild card. And we drew um, the defending French Open champion, uh, Rafa. Um, and so, if I'm honest, when I saw the draw, I was actually loving it. 
um, because it, it, you know you, you don't know you know you haven't played on tour that long, and it was I hadn't played that many sort of names. You, you, you play a lot of good players. Trust me, everyone you play is a good player. But in terms of guys who know a pretty you know they've already got legendary status um mm. um and so uh and you, you don't really get to play those guys especially at doubles because you know rafa doesn't play a lot of doubles mm. um so when we when we played him and lopez actually it was really um yeah it was really, yeah, really looking forward to it. the only thing i was a bit annoyed about was because it was a, an evening match they had um the match before was a singles match i don't know who it was it finished and as we sort of walked onto court um i could see them putting the covers over the tv cameras I was like, oh, come on. I've been waiting this my whole life, you know, centre court, you know, <laughs> Stella Artois, you know, and then, and then uh, at least I might get, you know, I might be, you know, hardly ever get you televised. I thought, oh, for sure, I'm going to get televised against Rafa. And, and they were putting the covers on, uh, and I was, uh, that, was, that, was, that was a little deflating. Um, and then, um, yeah, and we started the match and we ended up, um, ended up having, a, having, having a good match. A good match. You beat them. Six, three, seven, six. We, we, we beat them, yeah. <laughs> It's um, a couple of people often ask me what, what do I remember that from that match, um, and it was the, the two things that stood out for me. Um, and you talk about motivating factors. As we were getting ready, you take your racket out your bag, and we're you know you're about to do the ball toss, um, the, the coin toss. Over. There's two kids um, who'd obviously looking for autographs, obviously standing in the front row, sort of behind exactly where we were um, sitting. And I could hear them talking. They're like boulders blast. They're like, like three foot behind us. And then I remember them saying at some point, "Ah, oh, who are these guys? Are oh, they're going to get smashed? They're going to get smashed." Yeah, I think they're Brits. Oh, no, no chance. And literally within earshot. And I didn't. And I don't think I told Delhi. I only told him afterwards. But that racked me off. And I was like, "Who are these little little pits? Oh, I could. Oh. And I, could, I could, literally could have smacked them, um, but they were only about 14, so I couldn't. Um, and so, and probably, and, and, uh, and probably couldn't either. <laughs> yeah, probably couldn't either. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then, so that that was one of my last moments. And then, and then, and then going into the warm up, and I, so Delby was hit with Lopez, and I warmed up with Rafa. And I have to say, I mean, I've played a lot of professional. I've played hundreds and hundreds of professional matches. This was the worst warm up I've ever had in my life. Um, not because I was nervous. I'm just trying to get a rhythm, you know, trying to get a feel for the court. And he is smacking it. So I remember coming to the net, you know, he hit a couple of balls. I come to the net and the first ball, he, he just fizzes it as hard as he can, like to my feet. I shank a volley. I, I, I swear I had about four volleys in that warm up. He was hitting passing shots. I shanked one volley. It went over to Lopez's side and he ran in front of Lopez and hit a winning cross court for um, would have been backhand. I was thinking, what is going on? This guy's an ass. Um, and, and then suddenly, it suddenly dawned on me, like retrospectively, when I was reflecting on it, like um, it's just another good example of one, he, he wants to win. He doesn't care who you are. Um, secondly, he's going to prepare in his way. If that's how he gets ready for a match, he's probably also trying to intimidate. You know, I'm the French Open champion. I've just won it because my first match on grass. I hope he's going to, I'm going to, I'm going to rip it. And again, a motivating factor. So I, I, at first I thought, you know, this is a bit odd. And then I thought, oh, what an art. And then, I, then it, it riled me. It got, it got me going. I thought that you can't, that's not the right thing to do. Right. Okay, mate, let's, let's see what you got. Um, and then, so, and that really helped me actually. So, yeah, yeah. so I had a couple of motivating factors that le leading into that match that actually kind of spurred me on a little. Amazing. I mean, I, I do, I use that a lot um, when I'm, yeah, it's just as a teaching tool really. And I think, I think it's a it's a really good one again for the listeners, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. 
Rafael Nadal, we know everything about Rafael Nadal. Now, he just beaten Roger Federer in the final of the 2006 French Open. No disrespect to you and Delgi, but you walk on court against Rafael Nadal. And also, we're not mentioning here, he's been mentioned once, Feliciano Lopez, who's also an incredible, incredible tennis player. They would probably be taking you boys downtown in on a singles court. So I wouldn't be, wouldn't be getting downtown, mate. I would be on but, another planet. But, but this is my point. So, in terms of because there's a lot of people out there listening that play doubles, you know, they play doubles in their clubs, they play doubles in US college, they're maybe trying to start playing doubles on the pro tour. What to, to, to I guess, to somebody listening, well, tennis is tennis. How, how do you get? James Auckland, Jamie Delgado, beating Rafael Nadal and Feliciano Lopez on, on the tennis court. What, what, what happened in that match? How is doubles <clears throat> so different? And I guess inspire our listeners on the possibilities on the doubles court from that. Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, it's, it's quite, a, quite a, a, a narrow, simplified thought process. And, and you have to keep, if you, if you overthink anything, you, you, you're going to get yourself into a trouble. And I just remember thinking to myself, Okay, one, this is on grass. He's just from, come from clay. Um, you know, so I, I've grown up on the surface and I feel comfortable with it. Secondly, doubles. Okay, um, you know, I don't have, I, I don't have the same skill set by Rafa, by even in the same, the fact that I didn't even mention that in the same sentence is, is, is bizarre because obviously he's, he's Rafa and, um, and you know, relatively speaking, nothing. Um, however, I did back my, my skills at the net. So I, I, I said to myself, okay, well, I, I, I back myself that I'm better at the net than Rafa and and and, and maybe not Feliciano, he's obviously a great volleyer. But I'll tell you what, I haven't, but I've been training doubles patterns and um, execution patterns for the last two years solidly because this is what I've been doing. I don't know when the last time Rafa played a doubles match was. And so you, you kind of so you you take yeah. you, you focus on you focus on your strengths um and you uh and you focus on things that you can control, you know, the, the patterns of play and how you approach the match and 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 what you focus on during the match, how you control your breathing and the time and the tempo, all the little things that you can control, and and you give it your best shot. And and you, and, and honestly, try and enjoy the experience. I mean, you, yeah. you, and recognize that you don't often get to play French Open champions on centre court of, of 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 basically in your home city. So, you know, all of these things together, it, it, it got you into a place which was in a really, it, it was yeah, it was a really was an enjoyable experience, and that that really helped as well. And and you mentioned experiences. Can you can you mention any more experiences that really stand out for you through your tennis career? <laughs> I've, I've got I've got some good ones and some bad ones, which uh, I, I don't know, don't you know where to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you want good ones. Um, um, entertaining ones. <laughs> entertaining ones. I'll, I'll tell you, I um I'll, I'll I'll give you two. I remember um I, I, looking back, even as you say it now. Some of the the ones where you, you that I've enjoyed the most were well, smile through it, and a couple of them actually involved Andy. So our first match in San Jose, it was uh, so young Andy, seventeen, raw. We didn't really know each other that well at all, so it was our first time. And um, that whole week as a whole is just an absolute. I mean, there's so many funny memories from that week. It's his first week without a coach. He was traveling there without a coach, so we buddied up, and I sort of, sort of became his like hing partner in his sort of. Not not coach as such, but I helped him through. And he, he asked me to stay on because he was still winning singles. 
and um and Kim was there. It was her first trip with him as well. So and and but on court we were playing. It was our first. It's my first ever main draw tour match, and 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 his as well in doubles. So there we were, and, and he didn't really know much about double. He hadn't really played at all. And we played against um, Jeff Kutsi and Roger Vassen, who at the time were like top thirty doubles players. I think they were seeded two or three. I can't remember. And uh, we, we were playing, and and it was the first. I tell you what, it was, it was the first tournament where they had the. Uh, the no ad scoring, the no ad scoring had just come in, and it was it was a bit new to everyone. And we're like thinking, oh, what's you know what's this all about? You know what should we do? And we got to you know it's literally I think the first game or so, and we had it was juice, Sunday juice, and Annie's like, oh, what do we do? And he said, oh, should I take it? I said, oh yeah, I think your return's a bit better than mine, mate. And and he and he turned to me, he said, oh, do, 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 where do you want me to hit the winner? Like cross court down the line. And he said it totally flat. And I was like, and I was like, uh, wherever you want me, down the line? He's like, oh, okay. And, and <laughs> what he spun one in and he just turned around, smacked it down the line, clean winner to break. And I just started laughing and he started laughing. And then, and, and from that moment on, it became literally one of the most enjoyable in the matches only because we started like feeding off each other. And then I started playing well. I started returning well. So we had a, we had a break point a couple of games like later. And he said, uh, he said, go on, you have a go, you have a go. And I was like, all right, where, where, where do you want to, what else should I do? He said, I've got to hit a winner. I was like, oh, okay. And, it, and I don't think it was a clean winner, but it was a pretty much unreturnable. Yeah. And we just started cracking up. And from then on, like nothing could go wrong. We won that like one and three. It was probably like the, the best, one of the best experiences I've had where everything was working. He was laughing, I was laughing. And at once, that's probably the only reason he played doubles with me again. Um, and we, we, we had a similar, you know, similar experience at the French that year as well, first round. And we just laughed our way through. We ended up, you know, having quite a good... Um, when we, I think we won three and two first round and, and, and against a couple of good doubles players and just laughed our way through it. So w when you're enjoying tennis like that, that's fun because it can be a pretty tough, lonely, mm. desperate place on tour. And so when you have moments like that, that kind of really um, makes you understand why, why you know why you play the sport and love it. So that's there are certainly the, the fond memories. Um, having said that, the next round was was probably one of the most embarrassing. Um, so we 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 won that and then. Um, at San Jose, it's a big stadium. It's played inside um, the San Jose Sharks. I think it's an ice hockey stadium. Yeah. So it's like a 10, 15,000 indoor capacity. Um, hence to say our first round match was played in the country club off site in the country somewhere. So we were laughing about playing. We didn't feel like we were playing the same tournament. And then, so then, then all of a sudden we get play, we get to play um, next round. We're playing the top seeds. And if we'd won that match, we would have got to have played um, John McEnroe and Jonas Bjorkman. John McEnroe came out of retirement and he was playing, he basically buddied up with Bjorkman and, and Murray and, and McEnroe had started their kind of like tip, you know, their little funny, weird sort of tit for tat relationship. And I think he'd done an exhibition somewhere and walking out onto that center court, which was, uh, I remember just John McEnroe was in the, in the change room. He didn't know who I was, but he knew Andy. And he just turns to us just as we're walking out the door. He says, Andy, get this match done. I want to play you. I want to play you next. Come on. I want to play. I want to, yeah, me and you. I was like, oh, for I was like, sorry, 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 a bit of pressure on me. And, and he didn't say anything to me because he didn't know me. He was just like sort of nodded as we walked on court. Anyway, so we're playing um, Levinsky and Cermak, I think, yeah. top seeds. And um, very first point of the match, very first point of the match, um, I'm serving, I serve first, I serve. And um, great return by these guys. I pick one up and Levinsky crosses and he tags me. And I'm not joking. I think it just hits me square on the forehead. 
and in front of 10,000, and it's full because McEnroe is playing next. So everyone's filling up. So if it's in front of 10,000 people, I get one in the head, first point, and I, I just stand there. And I look over to Andy, and he is bowled over laughing. And he's just, he's, he, he's in stitches. And I'm, I'm, I'm now gone. I was a mess for us. I don't think, I think we barely won. I don't know if I hold serve that match. Held serve that match. So we, we lost, we bombed out there. And all I was thinking through the match was thinking, McEnroe's going to think I'm rubbish. I just got tagged first point. He's, he's not, he, well, I mean, it, so yeah, so that was, that was a, that was a funny experience now. Yeah. If this was, if we could have more time orcs, we could also unravel the psychology of those last two matches. Yeah. So I, I, I just mean, we've, been, we've just been talking for, we, we're gonna edit. We've, been, we've been talking for like two hours. We could talk all day, but I don't want to bore anyone. It's, uh, well, it's certainly not boring for me, but just on those two stories, my, my very quick point, if I can make a quick point, the, the enjoyment, living in the moment, enjoying the experience, getting stuck in, led to fantastic tennis. The, the mindset of being worried about what people think of you, you know, how things are going to go and what happens if you win and what happens if you lose and what are people going to think afterwards led to you playing poor tennis. There's maybe a lesson there for some players that are listening to and how to get the, create the right mindset. And oh. go on. No, I was just say, like, Philip, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I haven't, I haven't shared like, these these thoughts and, and stories, and, and yeah, just thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to relive it. I know it's uh, it's nice for us. Everyone else might find it a bit boring, but it's uh, uh we we could so you get at least you get to relive your your two thousand five Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, we won Wimbledon exactly. here, didn't we? <laughs> You've won it twice now. You won it this year as well. Um, <laughs> as now, I'd I'd like to move now into into James Auckland, the coach, I guess, and and. And like I said, off off air orcs, this is a part of your life I'm not as familiar with. So so I'm certainly intrigued to kind of understand you, the way that you think. So so people know James now works um, for Premier Tennis or as a director of, of Premier Tennis, which you can tell us exactly what it is. But for somebody who has been ranked as high as you in the world, I guess the fascinating bit for me is once you're in the top end of our sport, lots of people tend to stay there, you know, so you kind of doing that and then moving into more grassroots, more participation, I think, I think is, is, is really interesting. So um, you, I guess, guess you let us know a little bit about that, that coaching journey. Yeah. So I, I retired in 2009 or the, the end of, um, and um, I sort of knew I was going to stay in the sport. So it wasn't going to do something. Uh, it crossed my mind, actually, at one stage. I really got involved, uh, really like the idea of getting into event, uh, events and management and putting on show and putting on events. I quite like the idea of bringing stuff together that was going to be in tennis or not. Um, but as it was, I took a natural swing to, uh, to, to coaching, and I started coaching at the Queen's Club. There's an opportunity to be one of the lead coaches um, there. They, I think they were looking for... Um, uh, uh, to improve their coaching they'd never had an ex-player come in so I started actually in, in, as, as a coach there um, but at the same time Louis Kaye was actually looking to develop the double strategy for the UK um, so at the same time I got a call from from, from him and his team saying that can I help him um, work with players because the Olympics was, was coming up it was about two or three years away um, for, in 2012 and they said look our goal is to you know, we want to, we want to, uh, very simple. We want to win a gold medal, Olympic level, and we want to win a grand slam in doubles. And, and can, I'm looking for a team to help 
uh, build. And so actually my first years of experience as a coach was actually as a, as a touring player. So as you, as you said, you know, it, it, that was familiar. So I actually spent the first few years as my coaching career, working and traveling with and developing that strategy with Louis and, 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 and traveling with, with, with Jamie and, and Dominglot at the time and, and, and Johnny Mary and, and uh, even Delhi, you know, coming back to coach him as well a little bit as, as he carried on playing. And so that was a, that, that form. So that, so my first four years as a coach was, was, uh, or sorry, two or three years was there. And eventually that, that project, I guess, came to a, a, an end around about 2013. And I'd done a lot of traveling. I'd done a lot of traveling. And um, from the ages of, of, from a teenager, basically when we turned full time, you know what it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of weeks away. Um, I'd, I'd made my wife can, and we'd had uh, one and then by then two, kids at the time and so the the thought of traveling as well now was something which i i want to spend more time at home with uh, the kids i don't want to miss them growing up and so and i also i was looking for a new challenge as well and i had an opportunity uh with to work with a guy called jeff hunter uh who's a bit of a county week legend for any of you guys listening in, in surrey but also one of uh, he's one of those really annoying people he's not only incredibly talented but he's actually incredibly intelligent as well and I knew that um, you know, to have a chance to work with someone like that in a in an area of the sport which was new to me. Um, and I really like the idea of you know, like I said, I've taken so much enjoyment from this sport. Um, I liked the idea of having an impact in allowing more people to experience the enjoyment that our sport has to offer. Whether that obviously we talk about from a playing competitive um, experience, but actually, you know, what about every other facet and level of the game from spectator from coach, from parent, um, to, to just, you know, doing something active outside, um, which isn't in front of the TV, which is a, a sport that, you know, that can people experience this sport for the first time. And, and over the last few years, I've, I've really sort of grown to love seeing people come to our sport for the first time. Uh, and that's really something which I've, I've been working with, um, with Premier Tennis to help um, build those opportunities and, and, and help local authorities in particular um, help regenerate and activate and, and serve you know, residents in, in those areas um, that we sort of manage and operate um, sites, particularly park sites, and, and helping them come to our sport. I just happen to have a background in, in professional yeah. tennis, but which is, is a bit unusual for this industry. Uh, but it's it, it, I, it's nice to have a change as well. And I think I was looking for a new challenge at the time. And it, this, this, this was certainly it. And in terms of skill set, how many of what, what skill sets do you think you need in this area of our industry? Do you think you had those skill sets already and, and which ones have you had to develop? That's a good question. Um, learning all the time. So again, that was part of the new challenge, learning about what drives people to want to play our sport. Um, and, 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 and more importantly, what can we do to help people who engage with the sport to carry on? Um, so if I'm honest, but, but, I guess in terms of your, your, giving you an answer of my skill set, one, the, the energy, that's you, what you bring to something. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're passionate about something and and people and coaches, you know, mentoring coaches, and and if and and if people are around you, you want to create an infectious environment. I think um, Leon talked about a sticky environment, trying to create a sticky environment for for for, for, for professional or spying professionals to be around when you talk about a training environment. So I just applied the same mentality um, to um, to a social and recreational environment. Okay, what how can we create a, an environment where people will want to play in? So I, I provided, uh, I, I brought that to the table. 
um, and just and just talking about tennis in, in, in a passionate way and and, and letting um, you, you know like the areas and, and having that be reflected in our in our marketing and our tennis programs trying to be innovative uh, in in some of the programs and you know trying to develop uh, tennis programs and mentoring coaches and uh, and, and trying to reach out to sort of new sectors in, in that so I've always liked the idea of being creative so developing some you know our rusty rackets or our tops tennis program or um, I've got another coach Gary Warren he loved me mentioning his name Dan he, he wanted to do buggy tennis he said how can he you know newborns you know how can you get I said what well, Gary you want to you, you want to try and teach newborns how to play he said no 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 the mums the mums and so you know because they they don't get out so you know can they come on court with their buggies and feed come off and feed if they need to I was like mind-blowing i was like the fact that you're even thinking about it, that, that you, you have a guy or what you know you, they're the sort of guys i want to work with you know just yeah. just being innovative and, and 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 engaging and trying to think and and, and bring tennis to, to to people who wouldn't otherwise be there and what does success look like in in your in your business um good good question again i think success is seeing um new people come to the sport so in in terms of stats um, you know, using our, our technology to, to monitor um, different age groups and, and, and seeing a broader spectrum of people come. Um, and also we have what's called a long tail. So in our industry, in our sport, I'm not sure how it is in, in Spain, but recreationally, we have a lot, a lot of, lot of people playing tennis once or twice. So we call it the long curve. So if you, if you chart the amount of people tennis play, uh in in our country you you, you get a, a very few amount of people playing a lot mm-hmm. and then you've got everything in between and you've also you've got this really long tail on our charts of of hundreds and thousands of people who play maybe once or twice and if i'm honest they're the, they're the people you focus on you the, the people who are playing a lot in our sport are always going to play a lot they're passionate and they love it and they're yeah. engaged they're there they're not the guys you're trying to go after we want to support them and, and make sure they're looked after but it's actually these guys down here because if, if, we, if you can take 10,000 people who play the sport once a year and all of a sudden, you know, we get them played twice a year, not once a year, twice a year, let alone once a week, you, you've improved participation by 20,000. You know, it, it, it's a joke. Yeah. And so that's really where my energy is, is sitting at the minute is, is, is getting people in and getting the people to play a little, to play a little bit more uh, and building and, and like I say, opening up our sport um, through, through tech and through service to, to allow that to happen. And then you personally... What's your big why? What's your big motivating factor? Um, honestly, why, one is a new challenge. I, I love the idea of learning. We talk about um, progressive mindset in, in, yeah. in our industry about how, um, I thought it comes to my co- early coaching years, you know, learning new skills uh, as a player, um, learning new skills as a coach and how that, you know, how can I translate what I have into being a coach and then learning more about that and, and the skills associated with that. And I was really fortunate and being around Louis actually really helped me, who's a real um, a studious uh, person who's, who's constantly looking to learn and progress. And so that really reflected in me. And so, so now how can I continue to learn new skills to help bring people? And that, that can be anything from IT. I mean, my, my, my knowledge of gate access control has improved. I mean, I knew nothing about these systems. So, um, and to anything to um, presentation skills, to how we speak to groups and, 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 and mentoring coaches. So I guess my, my goal is to, is to continue that learning curve and, and, and hopefully have an impact on, on growing sport in our country as, as a byproduct. Very good. And I think my last question on that, Ox, is do you have the bug 
or do you think you will have the bug to to move back over to the more high performance side which is which you've made your name in um i, th I think so i think i think that'll come around i think when opportunities present themselves i mean um obviously we, our, our paths crossed a few years ago when i took on a a young um, aspiring player um emily appleton yeah. um at time. so i had an opportunity to work with her and, and she was you know and, and that was that was a great journey you know she went from 250 to top 10 itf and that was um and that was really um i really enjoy being part of of that journey um yeah. and um and obviously that came to a natural end because she wanted to travel more and i and she needed a full-time coach which is something yeah. like i could provide um and so it really just sort of a, a matter of chance really i've just started working with a couple of county players just who mm. happened to be uh, at, at queen's club and and i started to get a bit more involved in fact just before we came on i was on a performance analysis uh mm. forum with vlta um talking about how can we use performance analysis to, to help grow um um and develop players more and then can we feedback on how can we you know you know improve those you know offers to to, to young players and, and and young coaches and, and so, that, so, so I always try and keep my hand in things because if, I think if you step away from performance for too long, it is quite hard to either step yeah. back in. Um, so although I'm not currently working with any, you know, top hundred players, singles or doubles, I think it's, um, I think it, it, to keep my hand in it, to keep playing, to keep competing, I think is really good to stay fresh and understand, you know, those those processes that a player goes through um, is important as a coach, but also, you know, to, to keep your hand in things. And obviously I'm still quite close to a few of the guys, uh, Jamie's, my son's godfather so i have a quite i have a very close um uh, relationship with him so i follow what he's doing i spoke to him this week and obviously he's unfortunately just missed out on the o2 so he's he's twiddling thumbs at, at the intercontinental hoping for someone or well, not hoping okay. someone gets injured but being ready to step in if need be so I, I do try and keep my hand in in the game a little bit if but it's uh but it's like anything it's, it's just you know you put, your, you put yourself in god's hands and and see which uh, see see what doors open and and when and just and just know there's a path for you and and, and you you look for the science and, and follow and do what you can in the meantime. You mentioned Jamie Jamie Murray. Um, you've opened the door for me now to ask: Can his new partner not pull out of the O2 to allow him and his old partner to play one match and maybe pick up some points going into next year? <laughs> well yeah it's uh yeah it's a, it's a good point actually i don't know if it's true i just read uh on an article that actually um he's just uh, arranged to play with suarez for next that's, year he has so this is what i'm so that's what i'm saying so suarez is in the o2 so if suarez pulls out yeah. jamie gets to play with neil yeah to help jamie get more points to help jamie and suarez <laughs> next year <laughs> It would be. Yeah. I'm. 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 I'm sure the the the, the tens of thousands of pounds of prize money may have something to, to to help with that. You know, um, because it's yeah. like it's, it's a year end event, so the, the stakes are high, both you know points wise and financially. But um, but no, and also these guys are professionals. You know, they 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 agree a partnership and they want to they'll they'll fulfil that you know to the end. Um, so um, but yeah, it's uh, it's. it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he hasn't had that conversation because you've got all oh, I saw the other one that I saw was Kubot and Mello who've been a fantastic partnership for many mm. years now they they haven't qualified through to the semi-finals but they I don't know if it's been officially announced but they by their reaction they've they've they're about to split up as well because they were both highly emotional at the end of the match 
Um, oh, wow. You know, hugging each other. And it was it was obviously kind of a it's a relationship coming to an end. And I guess how can you give us a little insight into that on, you know, I think that's because this is something that happens a lot with doubles guys. It gets towards the end of the year and there seems to be so much change happens and so many so many different swapping of partners and I'm going to move in with this guy now next and start with him. And, yeah. you know, how, how is that world? Give us an insight into that world as a doubles player. Yeah. It's, do you know, it's, it's an inevitable part. Um, and it's sometimes a really, a really sad point. I think people change partners for different reasons. The, the two most being practical. Um, obviously sometimes, so, uh, if, you know, okay, I played with Hussey for a bit. So he was obviously, he lived in um, okay he, from Australia had family there but lived with his fiance now wife in uh, San um, uh, yeah San Jose I think uh, not San Jose um, he's out, out on the west coast he might move to Miami now but he was in the west coast of America yeah. so so in terms of training and developing really see each other, uh, each other at tournaments so so practically that's 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 a challenge so sometimes yeah. people change partners because they want to be with someone who they feel they can develop um, outside of the the tournament environment with their partners. Um, but actually, the reason me and Hussey split was our, our rankings were just at a really awkward stage where we, we weren't able to get into ATP events enough. So I think we were both around the 50, maybe I was in the late 50s, he was in the, he was in the 30s, then dropped to 60. So just when, so our combined ranking when we were playing, it was, it was inside 90. So we were getting to two events. Um, but obviously, when um, we, we either didn't defend points from a previous relationship, maybe like um, our rankings dropped a little bit. And you know, as soon as I combine, if I drop to sixty and he drops to fifty, all of a sudden we're not getting to two events, but we might have an opportunity to to get in with you know someone else. Or so we actually made a mutual decision and say, look, we can actually both get into this tournament if we split. I play with him, you play with him, and we can both play, and then hopefully that improves our ranking to a point where we can come back yeah. together. So we had a very amicable and mutual split. And um, and it, and, it, and, it, and we never got back to playing with each other, unfortunately. Um, but so sometimes splits can be really amicable, and and other times people will just be a bit more ruthless and say, "Do you know what? I'm playing my partner, but deep down, I think I can just I you know depending on what your you know your your levels are and what your aspirations are. If you if you feel you can't win a grand slam with someone, then you're going to change partners. And yeah. you know we're not we're not going to talk about names or people who that's happened here but that, that's another reason people will swap partners because they don't believe they can win grand slams with them and and, and they'll split to to whoever and, and play with someone who they feel they can because they want to look after you know they, they've got their own goals to achieve and they if you can't do it with this person but you believe you can with that then it's, it's that's that's the decision you have to make as tough as it is very good nice inside Oaks. last question before we move into the quick fire if you had any advice to give an 18-year-old James Auckland, now you know what you know, what would it be? Oh, I dreaded that question. That was a question I was going to ask Andy at something, you know, a year years ago in another open form. Um, I would say um, um, keep keep taking risks because they, they work. Take educated risks, take chances. Um, so rather than change things, focus on the things that worked well. Uh, take some chances um, and trust you got you got you got to trust in your own ability more I think the, the one thing if I had to put my finger on it was at, at times I, I I felt I had a little bit of the imposter syndrome something yeah. which has been talked about I think um, that stemmed for many reasons um, I think at times I felt that I didn't necessarily belong and I think that that really that's probably the single biggest reason what which held me back 
um, um, more than anything else um, from being a top 10, top 20 player. Um, so, so to really so trust your ability um, and, and to keep, keep doing every, keep exhausting every uh, possibility. I think you can never really sort of train hard enough, really. I think, um, and I'm not saying that I, I don't think I trained hard. I think I did train hard, but I think, um, but keep trying to be professional and, and never, never get bored of doing good things well all the time mm. um, because it, it can get boring. Doing the good things well and, and being professional can be really boring at times. Um, and um, I, I don't know if I, I don't say I necessarily stop. There's probably times where um, I wouldn't say took my foot off the gas, um, but I got affected by defeat and other people. So there's one year, for example, I didn't get selected for Davis Cup when I really should have done. I really believed I was, I was the higher ranked player. Um, I was playing better tennis and the person who got chosen was lower ranked. Um, but he, I, I, I think, yeah, it, but I wasn't in the right. I, yeah, yeah. I, felt, I, felt, I felt the decision was made for the wrong reasons. And that really, really affected me. And if I'm honest, that affected me too much. And as a result, my performance has suffered. And as a result, my ranking dropped. And actually, if I'm honest, it's probably the beginning of the end of in terms of my, my ranking dropping out of um, the top 100. And um, and so that would be that would be a, a, a you know keep focusing on on how you can you know the things that you can control control the controllables versus series and um, and and I and I let I let that affect me way too much and that was that was that was probably my biggest regret I think. I suppose you got if you got smarter in your old age or something I'm sure you wouldn't have given such a good answer twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I've got I've got I've got someone else's answers written down in front of me here. <laughs> sounded sounded fantastic that I tell you what no really no really good great great advice great advice and and you know what mate the podcast has been full of it you know I know we. We had a little bit of massage of ego, um, or certainly I did halfway through when we talked about 2005. But I think some of the topics we've got into have been just brilliant. And I think, for again, for people to, to hear, hear your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge, your insight is, has been brilliant. And I've loved talking to you, mate. So thank you for coming on. You now have the quick fire. Are you told me this at the start? I was probably I don't know anything about this now. Now I'm now I'm under pressure. But apparently, you know, you you can you can you can go one or two ways under pressure. So let's see let's see how I get on. Let's see how you step up. Singles or doubles? Doubles. ATP or Davis Cup? Oh. Um. ATP. Well, if you're feeling the pressure on that question, you're not going to like some of the next ones. Flipping it. No, no, I, 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 I was torn there. Uh, indoors or outdoors? Outdoors. Favorite Grand Slam? Oh, I, I, I've got to, I've got to say Wimbledon. I know it's so cliche, but it's yeah. I do like Australia though. Andy or Jamie? <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I'm going to say only only because I know it'll rack him off. Uh, I'm going to go Jamie. Pookie or Fleck? So say like I missed that. Who? Pookie or Fleck? I don't know what that is. I don't know what those things. I'm going to go Pookie. I don't know what that is. This is amazing. He calls. Oh yeah! Oh my goodness! No no no! Oh my! Sorry, I, I thought you. Yeah, I thought you said. Okay, I'm gonna go. Sorry, Robert Fleck. Sorry, I yeah, you you got me there. I was I was thinking, what's that got to do with tennis? Is it part? Is this a new Spanish game I'm missing? Um, yeah, I go yeah, Robert Fleck. Come on, 
to all of you people from Norfolk, I apologise that he's yeah, no. he's what you should have said. What you should have said was Goss. <laughs> I'm still reliving that volley. <laughs> yeah, that would have been one nil against Bayern Munich. Huh? Two, thank um, you very much. Was it two? <laughs> should there be an injury timeout or not? Um, an injury timeout, as in where you can get treatment. Yeah. Uh, yes. If there was one rule you would change in tennis, what would it be? Um, only one toilet break. What's your favourite book? Uh, I should. Uh, are we talking? Oh, uh, um, I, I'm torn here. I, I, sh I know I should say the Bible, but I'm gonna say Shantram. Um, because I know I, I, <laughs> so I'm gonna say both. <laughs> and and who should be our next guest? Who should be your next guest? Oh, I like that one. Uh, Louis Cayet. Let's get them on. Let's get them on. Orcs, love seeing you. Big, big love to the family. Thanks for coming on. And you, man. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I feel so sorry for your listeners. This might be the longest podcast in, in history, but hopefully, someone <laughs> is. So, hopefully, someone's flying to Australia and listening to this, but and then it's killing for a couple of hours. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Another another fascinating conversation for me. A big thank you to James Auckland for coming on the show. And yeah, as I'm trying to do, I'm trying to kind of depict the conversations and, and give you my key messages that on reflection, haven't had the conversation. And then then when I go back and I edit and re-listen to, to the conversation and certainly what comes out very loud and clear for me is this nature of thinking that a player has more chance because they receive funding. And as we see, see with James's story, it can sometimes be a heavier weight on the neck of a player. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't always mean that that player is, is the most fortunate because what actually happens, as James discussed, you can get a little bit entitled. You can then maybe lose a little bit of your edge. And one of the things we didn't discuss in the podcast, but one of my reflections, is it can also weigh you down. It can weigh people down. Expectation goes up. There's more eyes on you. So I'm not convinced it's always a good thing. And this goes back to some of the discussions we've had on other podcasts where maybe there is a different way of doing funding where it's not quite as direct as I think you could be good. Here's some money. Prove me right. You know, I think it's it's more of a case of if you achieve this, look what there is there. You know, and it's a little bit more of the kind of the stick and the carrot, you know, actually getting after that carrot, dangling that carrot for people. And then actually people can carry on on their own journeys in their own way and and the cream will rise to the top. Yeah, just one of my thoughts that, that came out from the conversation. My second thought would be around stories he shared with Andy Murray 
And I know Andy's someone where we'd really like to get onto the show, but Andy, I know a little bit personally. And, you know, I think people are starting to see that side of Andy Murray. But just it was lovely to hear some of the funny stories. And if we go to the doubles story of those guys playing, when they had that fun element and that in San Jose, they they played a, a, a 10 out of 10 match. And they played without expectation. They were they were focused on the right things. They were enjoying the moment. And then the following day, as James talks about, he started to feel that they needed to win. John McEnroe was waiting. There was a bigger crowd. You know, all of a sudden there was a few more external pressures. And maybe they tried to win even harder. And that led to them not quite performing. So I think, yeah, when it comes around the psychology of the sport, it's fascinating. And I think there's certainly a couple of those key things that came out of the podcast for me. Uh, anything that came out for you, please do get in touch. I know lots of you have been getting in touch, which, which, is, which is wonderful. Um, please do keep sending your thoughts through. Um, a big thank you to all the ratings and reviews that have been coming in. Really, it's, it's mind-blowing to... To me to read those and to see the impact and the positive impact that it's having on whether it's a tennis player tennis parent and that's really lovely feedback to get to kind of keep the drive going to keep bringing these podcasts to you so a big thank you for that if you haven't managed to rate or review it yet please just just spend 10 seconds 20 seconds one minute on the apple podcasts review just you scroll down past the podcasts and you'll have the opportunity to rate and review it there so a big thank you for for doing that hope everyone else as well but for now i'm dan kiernan my co-host is john mcgann we are control the controllables